Welcome to Fratello on Air, a podcast brought to you by members of the Fratello team. And welcome to episode three. I'm Mike Stockton, and I'm recording from the land of apple wine, aka Frankfurt, Germany. I'm Robert Jan Brewer, recording from The Hague, and uh, no wine here, but uh, we have other good things, I guess. Yeah, some people probably wouldn't call apple wine wine, but it is what it is, so. I had it once when I was uh, in Frankfurt for my former job in my former life uh, when I was in banking. And we had an office in uh, Frankfurt, one of the huge towers there. And uh, one of my colleagues, uh, he took us out to the uh, like an apple wine restaurant. Mm-hmm. And I was mainly there for the big ass uh, schnitzels. <laughs> but uh, they also had apple wine. And I think that was their uh, that was their gig. But I really didn't like it. Yeah, it takes some getting used to. Um, it took me a couple years, and I and I don't mind it now. Um, but I but I had to laugh because, as you know, I am a fan of beer, and I think the one city to move to in Germany that is not known for beer is Frankfurt, and that's where I ended up. So you you get your imports right. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so everyone, welcome, and hopefully you've enjoyed the first two episodes of Fratello on Air. I think uh, we got feedback from many of you that our last episode was a little more casual and we felt a little more at home. So hopefully we'll continue going down that path. We also had to to find our way a bit with the setup of the equipment, of the microphone, of the headphones, and. I'm really not used to this, and I, I guess the same goes for you, Mike, that it feels a bit uncomfortable at first, sitting on with a headphone and a mic in front of you and recording software in front of you. Um, but yeah, you you get used to it, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And they do make this stuff relatively easy today. Or not. Yeah. Easy enough that we can't even screw it up too badly. So <laughs> True. And, and we do edit, of course, uh, uh, afterwards. And um, and I also, I have to admit, and I called you last week when I was in the car, Mike, um, I, I drove back from, from Frankfurt to home, and um, it was the first time I really listened to other podcasts. I have to to uh, to confess that before our own podcast, I never listened to podcasts before. I did once, uh, partly to The Grey NATO from Jason Heaton and, um, and James. It's a really cool uh, podcast and they, they mentioned us a few times and I think it was about Speedy Tuesday that I decided to, to listen to uh, their podcast. But other than that, I really never listened to podcasts. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we talked about this. I drive, I don't know, 65 kilometers each way every day. So yeah. I, if I'm not on a conference call, I generally have something going and everything from the various watch podcasts out there to true crime to... Of course, there's a ton of stuff out there now about the moon landing, which is fascinating. So they're they're really good, but I can I can understand that if you're not on the move all the time, podcasts are are probably not something that you would naturally gravitate towards. So no, I, I don't listen to them in the office. I have to say because then I'm working and and busy writing and doing stuff, and then I lose my concentration to to listen to the podcast basically. So then I miss half of the of the conversation. 
And in the car, it's 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 it is much easier, um, yeah, to follow a conversation. But the same for me goes for radio. That in the car, I listen more concentrated to radio than when I'm in the office. Yeah. Well, maybe we've uh, maybe we've uh, introduced you to a to a new medium for you, and you can go down the uh, the rabbit hole of series like Serial and others that are. Uh, yeah, we'll have you sitting in the parking lot for an extra hour because you can't turn it off. So let's see. Very good. What are your favorite watch podcasts? Yeah, I mean, I listen to the Grey NATO. Um, obviously, it's I, I like both of those guys, and I think they've got a really good uh, banter back and forth, and they cover a lot of cool subjects. Um, I also, you know, I'll turn in tune into Worn and Wound uh, every so often, depending on the subject matter. Sometimes it's um, just something that I'm really interested in. Sometimes, you know, if it's a brand that I, I don't follow, then I won't. And then I have to say, um, as an American, I do tune into uh, Two Broke Watch Snobs, which is a that's a very different kind of podcast. And I would tell you that if you're a technical watch person. Um, it's probably not your podcast, but two guys who, I mean, they simply sound like they're having fun and they, they like watches and yeah, it's, it's, it's a good, it's a, I like to listen, but if you're not American and I do know us Americans are known for talking on and on, then, uh, you might have a tough time with it. So yeah, those are the three that I listen to. Okay, cool. I will give that a try. Yeah, Grey NATO, I know, and I listened to a few uh, also last week in the car. I had a five-hour drive, so that was uh, all podcasts for me. And I listened to a few uh, of the Hodinki podcasts, which uh, yeah, really sound professional and, and well done, I have to say. Yeah, and oh, we, we shouldn't forget Time for a Pint as well. Chris Mann does, oh, a, of course. does a really nice job. I know he's, he's a really busy guy um, elsewhere, so not as many podcasts lately, but He's, uh, well, anybody with an English accent, in my view, can sound like uh, the next TV show host. So he sounds great and he covers some really, really good guests. So, yeah. Yeah. He covered us, I guess. I don't want to, to give well, ourselves what, a really great guest uh, yeah, label. That's why but... I said it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but it was really nice. He, he recorded me inside of a bar and there was someone uh, uh, hitting the piano and uh, someone uh, lost a tray of, uh, of glasses. So, yeah, I, I forgot about that one. But I listened to that one, and I think it was a long one. It was like over an hour. Yeah. And, um, yeah, for me, that felt like a long, long time talking, and I really wondered if people were really interested in, in listening to it. But uh, I think it it gets a lot of traction. People, A lot of people listen to uh, Time for a Pint. Yeah, and he's he's got a big fan base, and obviously with the monthly get-togethers he plans, um, there's yeah. a, a really – there's a big fan base and we know some, some people have flown in from Germany and other places just to attend that. So good on Chris for, for creating time for a pint. Yeah, definitely. So, so okay. We, so shall we uh, run through the agenda here? Yeah, please do. Yeah. So obviously we'll start off with uh, what's on our wrist today. And then we're going to we'll talk a little bit about this uh, Marlon Brando watch that you know, amazingly resurfaced over the last week. Yeah. We'll talk a little bit about uh, we've got a we've got a listener question or topic about our most unboring watch because Robert John had called his Submariner last episode kind of boring. So it is. 
boring, boringly efficient, I guess, right? Exactly. And then almost German. Yeah. <laughs> and then we'll talk about, uh, yeah, I, I think a, a really good subject that, that gets a lot of attention these days. We're going to talk about our thoughts about limited edition slash collaboration watches, and we'll, we'll both kind of go through what we like about them, kind of go back and forth, and then what what we don't really like. So hopefully those topics are interesting for you, and yeah, you'll you'll get our thoughts on all of them. So, Robert Chan, why don't you kick us off with uh, what is on your wrist? I am wearing something really quirky. It's a Seiko. Uh, it says Sports 100 on the dial. It's a digital watch. So it, it has a, an LCD screen uh, split in half. And there's an upper part and there's a lower part. And it's the, um, the A829-6019. And if you're a Seiko geek, then you probably recognize it. It's the astronaut's watch from Seiko. Oh. Um, there was a Seiko in space called the Seiko Poke. I think you have one, Mike. I have a relative, yes. yes. Yeah. And um, this watch, um, it was introduced to me by, I saw, well, let me put it differently. A few years ago, I saw a picture of the Dutch astronaut Wibbel Ockels on a on a Dutch magazine about space. And I think it, the, the title of the, it was a one-off and the title of the magazine, I think was his name, Rebel Ockels. And he was wearing this watch undercover and I shot him an email and he emailed me back and he said, yeah, it's the, then he gave me the reference to AA29 mm-hmm. and even mailed me his serial number. And he wore this in space in the space shuttle in 1985, the STS uh, 61A mission. And I think he was like a payload specialist on there. And he actually is the inventor of the sleeping bag that they use in space. Oh, wow. Okay. So that you don't float away. But the the, the sleeping bag, I think, is connected to a wall. And there you sleep inside. And so you, you can't be, uh, you, you don't move, basically. Uh, he, he emailed me about his watch. And I really liked it. But it's, at, at least at some point, it was very difficult to 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 find a decent one, and it took me uh, quite a quite some time. But uh, I found one for a few hundred euros, and um, it's a cool watch. So it's a digital watch. I will post a picture later. I can post a picture of my own one, but I also have a picture of the real one that flew. So that's perhaps even more interesting. And um, there are two buttons on the watch. On um, let me see, four o'clock and eight o'clock, where you can can yeah you can set some stuff with that but setting the the functions of the watch you do it by turning the bezel so the watch has this bezel with blue and red although the red faded a bit to like salmon color which is very popular these days so i think it's uh, very trendy now but uh, by by turning the bezel you will switch to the different modes on the watch like time and date and uh, a timer and a chronograph and a it has a counter and dual time and so on. It's a really neat watch. And yeah, it's a bit of a space memorabilia. And um, yeah, it's only a few hundred euros that, that it will set you back. And um, yeah, it's a cool watch. And I asked him about it, how it went down, if he just purchased his watch himself and used it in space. But that was not the case. They uh, Some ESA astronauts, so ESA is for European Space Agency, they purchased a... Uh, yeah, a bag full of these watches, basically, and just handed them out to their ASA colleagues. And uh, yeah, they used them in space. So you will, if you look on uh, the NASA, Arga- NASA archives, they have a huge archive um, online with images. You you can find quite a few 
space shuttle astronauts wearing this watch, basically. So this is way before the X-33 that was introduced in 1998. Um, I don't know what the year of this watch is, but you can easily determine it. Uh, mine starts with a 2, so that would be 1982. Uh, the next digit is a three, so it would be March 1982. Um, so that's a few years before the actual space shuttle mission that he uh, that he flew on. But uh, yeah, you see a lot of, of astronauts from, from that period wearing this watch. So he did, and uh, I think some of his uh, crew members did. And it was on the same mission where Reinhard Fuhrer, he's the Austrian, not German, I think Austrian astronaut, that is famous for, at least among watch geeks, for wearing the SIN 140. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. So yeah. why did they pick so that That's what watch? I'm wearing today. Why, why did they pick uh, that watch? Any idea? Yes, because um, I the remember bezel? a TV program where, where, he, yeah, where he was on television explaining his watch, basically, to an audience that didn't care. But, yes, I think someone asked him about watch on television. Then he went all nutty and... and and uh, yeah, talked about the watch and setting it and showed the different functions. It, it was a bit geeky, but <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, I, I don't think he really cared. Um, yeah, so it was basically about setting the watch by turning the bezel. That was the main functionality for them to yeah to easily set it without having to go through uh, like six different pushers. Cool. Is that is that the yeah. one that I brought back from the US? I feel like it is, isn't it? It is, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. I okay. ordered it on eBay. First, I ordered another one that was also used in space. It has the same first few digits, so also AA29, but the last four are a bit different. So it looks a bit more different. It looks a bit more squarish and with uh, black and red. And that was not the one that I was really after, but I yeah, bought it anyway. And then I found this one, the, the Ockels uh, Space Watch, uh, I would like to call it. And... Um, I found it on eBay, but the seller did not want to ship to Europe or to the Netherlands. Um, I don't know why. Um, so yeah, I had to, I, I, someone else ordered it for me, and I think you brought it back from the US to uh, to me, basically. Yeah, yeah. Yep, it, it was a cool watch for sure, and uh, yeah, I mean, for you to have it, obviously with the the space background, but the fact that a, a Dutch guy wore it um, is. Yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely means more more for you to have that for sure. So. Yeah, childhood hero. So that was that's a nice piece uh, piece to own. And um, I know that he 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 passed away, but he gave it the watch that he flew with. He gave it to his son, and um, I played golf with him last year. He's a very nice guy. And he was just wearing that watch during the game of golf. And that struck me a bit <laughs> as awkward or risky. <laughs> but he felt completely comfortable with that. So, yeah, why why tell him otherwise, basically? If he, he's the comfortable Seiko, with it, right? then why not? Yeah, the Seiko, yeah. yeah. yeah so, cool. And how That's about yourself? I am wearing a watch that I have actually had on now for a couple of days in a row. Um, I have uh, the Omega... 145018 Deville chronograph. Oh, nice. So, yeah, so if you are an Omega fan or if you're not, um this is a watch from yeah, approximately 1970 and it's an 861 powered chronograph, so same movement as in the Speedmaster. Uh but in a in a 35ish millimeter case that um uh, I I think looks a little bit like the the pre-Daytona case, the, the 
think it's a 6238 uh, from Rolex. And this watch is, yeah, it's one that for some reason, when I posted on Instagram, like I did the other day, it's the one, or it's, it's one that gets, you know, the most, uh, ton of likes. And I always get all these unsolicited how much type questions. So it's a, it's a funny watch because they didn't make it for very long. And I think they're, they're not huge, obviously, but for some reason people really like these. And yeah. I got it a couple years ago, actually a friend of ours, a mutual friend of ours, Wayne Puckett, who uh, goes by GB flyer 65 on Instagram I remember when he bought it and uh, Wayne being Wayne, he keeps a watch for a little while and kind of makes a decision as to whether or not it's going to, going to stay around. And I told him, I said, Hey, if you ever get tired of that Omega, let me know. And lo and behold, he sent me a note and it was available. And, you know, I have to say this watch, they, they, they made a ton of different dial combinations. And this one I think is one of the more attractive ones. It has a kind of a gray dial with, um, yeah, applied markers and the little loom pips on the outside, but it's got white subdials and then it's got black font on one, green on the other, and red on another. And it's just a tremendously cool watch. It it's no one knows why they put these colors in. Um, I asked the museum; uh, they actually looked it up for me and found. I think it was delivered to Taiwan. And ultimately, you know, when Wayne bought the watch, I think it came from Singapore. So. You know, it lived most of its life in Asia, and yeah. now it sits here in Germany. But it's on its original bracelet. It's uh, really in great condition, and yeah, watch that. Yeah, every time I put it on, I think, wow, they they knocked it out of the park with that one. And cool. yeah, just odd that it's a Deville. I, I still find that it's so sporty, but one of Omega's cooler watches, I think. Yeah, and it's not very typical for Deville to be very sporty it's their dress line and I think but in the past it was also their uh, their dress line basically they had some I think they they had some chronographs and so on but I think yours it looks much more sporty than a, a dress chronograph that they they normally do yeah and um but we put a picture online of your watch so people can uh, have a look at it we put it in our uh, Fratello article that goes with this uh, recording yeah and I don't know, you, you know this this stuff better, but I think the DeVille grew out of the Seamaster line, didn't it? Yeah, it started as Seamaster DeVille. Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly why you had these Seamaster dress watches. I used to have like a Seamaster 600, which has nothing to do with being 600 meters or even foot <laughs> in the water. But So I don't know where the number comes from. But um, yeah, they were, these were dress watches. You had them with hand-wound movement and automatic movement. And at some point, they also did these uh, Seamaster Deville watches. I think I had one in gold, actually. So it was also quite a, a yeah a dress watch, and uh, they're quite nice. And I think in sixty-seven or sixty-eight, from the top of my head, the Deville collection was introduced, and I think it was the last collection that was introduced by Omega. Okay. Yeah, because as a, as a family, yeah, you see these these chronographs with Seamaster Deville, sometimes Seamaster, sometimes Deville. So it, it really feels like yeah. in that late '60s period they were still figuring out what direction they wanted to go. So, yeah. In yeah. any case, today the 
today the Deville is very important. I think it's uh, good for uh, a big chunk of their turnover, basically, or revenue. Um, the Deville Prestige is, is a watch that is being sold a lot, especially in Asia. Yeah, yeah, that's where I've seen a lot of them. So, yeah. well, great. Well, let's um, let's jump into our first topic and. You know, I said it in article yesterday, just the weekly roundup, uh, unless you've been living in a jungle, which a uh, little pun intended there, uh, the news hit. And I think the New York Times actually broke it, uh, that the the watch used in 1979's Apocalypse Now by Marlon Brando as Colonel Kurtz uh, was a a bezel-less, uh, 19, well, bezel-less 70s uh, Rolex GMT Master yeah. uh, 1675. And this is a watch that, at least amongst watch geeks, is one of those that, you know, where has it been? No one knows. And yeah, here it comes. So the New York Times announced that it was found. Uh, actually, it was never really lost. It was just owned by the the Brando family, so his daughter and her uh, her husband had uh, the watch since 1995, and actually the daughter received it when she graduated from Brown University, and then she gave it to her husband when they married in 2003, and it's been supposedly sitting in a drawer ever since. And Phillips will uh, take this watch to auction on December 10th in New York City. Part of the part of the uh, sale will go to charity uh, for, I believe, abused children. So that's a good thing. That's but, a good cause. Yeah. I also have to say that I always wonder what what people are thinking of selling these watches. I mean, she received it from her father, I guess, for graduation. Why would you sell that? Yeah, I mean, if, I, you, if they want to donate to a good cause, I guess they have the means for that anyway. Um, yeah, you never yeah, a watch like that would mean a lot to me. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I mean, you never know with these things. On the other hand, um, if they haven't worn it in the last uh, 15, 16 years or something like that, maybe they feel that uh, the money is better better used by them and, and this charity. But I, I'm with you. And I think, you know, when we, we were talking about this a little bit because it does feel today in these big headlining auctions that there's a real need to have a celebrity piece or some sort of resurface piece. I mean, this all didn't start, but it certainly hit its peak with the, with the Paul Newman. Uh, yeah. And the Elvis through. watch, not to forget. Yeah. The Elvis watch. And we've had some pretty rare Rolexes that have been owned by, you know, leaders of countries and things like that. But it, it, it does feel, um, I, I I would never accuse anyone of saying, yeah, they, they knew this watch was out there and it was just time to bring it out. And perhaps there was just convincing people that uh, it's worth so much now that it's, it's finally time. But I, I, I have a hard time believing when I read some of the backstory that it was laying around in a drawer and people just contacted them and said, oh, do you know what you have? Um, just suddenly. It, it, it's hard for me to believe. And, yeah, and yeah, I guess I, they 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 think the the bidding will start at six figures. I mean, I wrote yesterday; it wouldn't surprise me if this crests a million. It's uh, there's a lot of story behind it. Certainly, in the months to come, there will be a ton of um, yeah, a ton of publicity around it, showing it to potential buyers, and 
I think, a million dollars, unfortunately, for somebody who uh, can afford to spend it on something like this is really not a ton of money, which is crazy to say. True. So, Yeah. Coming back to the thing of about selling it, um, I also can imagine that uh, Marlon Brando had some more watches. Yeah. Um, so perhaps this was not the most important one for him or his family. So perhaps he, uh, there are still some watches that they really want to, to that they really want to keep. And um, yeah, this one, this one has the, the had the exp- exposure. So perhaps they they are willing to let this go f- to support a good cause. But they might have some watches from him that mean more to them personally. Yeah, I think most pictures you see with him in the eighties and nineties, he seems to be wearing a gold president. So. That seemed to be more his style, which is kind of crazy. He's a he obviously wasn't a little guy, and uh, that was a thirty six millimeter watch. So, I guess this GMT just wasn't uh, just didn't fit fit his uh, daily lifestyle. So, yeah, could be. Yeah, who knows? But okay, it'll be interesting nonetheless when it when it uh, hits the block. So, yeah, what's what's their estimate? Do you know? They've they've really. I read uh, Paul Boutros said that it'll start in the six figure range, but I don't think they'd actually put a uh, put a number down yet. So yeah. let's see. Yeah, let's yeah. see. Okay. All right. And then you just need to buy a spare bezel for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and December tenth, you know, RJ, Christmas is coming. So if you're if you're thinking I will start about saving what, up. Yeah, if you're thinking about what to get me, you know. Now we've got a so we've got a, a listener question. Yes. And the question arose after RJ brought up his boring purchase of a Submariner in 2017. Uh, this listener came back and asked, "Well, what's your most unboring watch?" Which is kind of a kind of a cool question, and I think we'll we'll take a few minutes to to talk it through. So, yeah. RJ, do you want to lead us off with this one? Yeah, I first want to uh, say thank you to our listeners for um, um, handing us over some questions. This question was asked by Instagram user MCKWZN. Um, I'm not sure where he's from, but uh, yeah, we'll find that out. Um, my most unboring watch. And he also added, this doesn't mean any sentimental value or its history, just a watch that is completely unboring. That's a, <laughs> quite a difficult one. Um, I, I could go for gold because I think the the, co- the color of gold and the material, it, it strikes me as very unboring, to be honest. Um, but I have to say, if I look at my collection, the most unboring watch, then I have to make a few choices. Um, but I think I will go with my recently acquired ProProf. That watch looks very unboring. It's rather unboring. <laughs> Yeah, and that's mainly due to the shape. If I look at the color, I think um, it has an orange button, as you know. Um, that's nice, but the rest of the watch is quite, um, um, yeah, steel and black. So yeah, if 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 colors come to to the to the game, then I would say something in gold that I have, perhaps a gold Speedmaster or a gold Globemaster. I have an old gold constellation, a few actually constellations and a Seamaster, but I think very unboring mainly due to the shape is the pro prof nice nice and for you yeah i i thought about this one as well and for some reason color came to mind i mean honestly as funny or as as boring as your submariner might be uh, i find the gmt with a with a pepsi bezel unboring but but that's not where i went um 
I actually went with a Seiko, which is, I think, well, we've hit Seiko already today, but episode three, and I don't think we've gone into much depth about Seiko, which is crazy. But um, I own quite a few Seikos, and the model that I picked is a Rally Diver from 1969, but it is the 5126-8120. So it is not the probably more familiar CK-shaped uh, 6106 and 6119 models. This one is from the Daini factory, which is the second factory. And it is kind of like a, a rectangular or square shaped case. And it's got a blue dial uh, with all kinds of orange highlights. And then the rally bezel itself is blue, silver, and black. And it's a wild watch. I mean, it is very psychedelic looking and uh then, then it comes on kind of like a ladder bracelet that even just adds to the yeah the, the late 60s, 70s feel. Um, this is one of Seiko's many uh, sport divers that they made during that period with a 70-meter water resistance. So, you know, it was a lot more show than go, you could say, because it doesn't have a screw-down crown or anything. But it is, yeah, it, it is definitely not boring and... We'll put a we'll, we'll put pictures of these watches in uh, in the article in the show notes so you can take a look. But you wrote an article about this one, right? About I, I think diver. I think I just um, I wrote an article about vintage sport divers, and I had a section on the rally divers, and this is one of them. Um, they, there is an article by you talking about the six one zero six eight two two nine rally diver. It yep. was a throwback Thursday. Yep. Um, so that was feature. a different. Uh, it was a, yeah. a different model, but uh, kind of with a similar bezel style. And all these rally divers from Seiko are are, are pretty unboring, and that's why they they have a pretty big following amongst Seiko collectors. In fact, you you've you got one as well. One. Yeah. I have one. Yeah. yeah, you make me buy it. Yeah, they're super. <laughs> and cool. And I never wear it. Yeah, you should. It's, it, <laughs> it is super cool, and I had it um, restored by uh, our Gucci loafer wearing watchmaker Paul. <laughs> And um, he did a really nice job. And he, he, yeah, he didn't touch it. Uh, he didn't touch the, the dial or the, the case and so on. He's very good uh, at not touching stuff. Yeah. But he fixed it and he surfaced it. And he always complains a bit when I hand over a vintage Seiko. Oh, because he hates I think them. <laughs> he, he hates them. Um, and that's mainly because a lot of people who bought Seiko like this, like 30, 40, 50 years ago, they never surfaced it. And um, so a lot of parts are worn out and basically need replacement. And that's where the issue is, yeah. that there are no spare parts. So he has to go through all his his drawers and stuff and look on eBay for donor watches and so on to find something. Um, yeah, it gets more and more difficult. I also have this 6309 six Diver watch, the Turtle, the yeah. Diver um, watch. I had it serviced by Seiko in the Netherlands and... Um, they also had a hard time doing so because the parts also for them is a real big issue. Um, so vintage Seiko, I really love them, but what's holding me back is the fact that, yeah, they, they uh, only few of them seems to uh, receive a good service every once in a while. So for me, it's very difficult to, to, to um, determine whether it's technically a good watch. Yeah. It's a, it's a labor of love. I mean, the positive is that finding donor parts isn't expensive like it is for Rolex or Omega, but you know, it's disappointing when you 
you know, finally find the watch you want, you get it to you and it doesn't run well and you give it to your watchmaker and they go, uh, it needs a, you know, a winding pinion or something. And you're like, oh man, how do I go find that? Which is yeah. sometimes a lesson in waiting through a lot of things in Japanese. Um, but this one was actually serviced right before I bought it. I bought it from a guy here in Germany. And in fact, um, <laughs> this is kind of funny. I, I remember my wife was in labor and this guy was sending me messages and we finally agreed upon a, a deal. So I bought this watch while my wife was in labor, which was a good, uh, which is a, a good distraction for me because, uh, as I'm sure you can uh, sympathize, that's, uh, not the most calm, calm moment. So. And you, your wife knows about this? Um, I don't think she was in any position to listen to such things. So <laughs> thankfully she does not. So, yeah. Very good. So, yeah. So okay. So these are the unboring uh, watches. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So uh, let's move on to, to the final topic here that'll take us a few minutes to, to, to peel back. But we wanted to talk about limited editions and collaborations. There just seem to be more and more of these on the market and, yeah, what I, what I thought we would do is just go back and forth a little bit on the positives of these limited editions and collaborations, and then we'll get into the pieces that we don't like. So, um, Robert John, why don't you kick us off with some of your thoughts about this? Yeah, I have to say it might sound a bit weird or because I wrote an article about limited editions in the past um, concerning Speedmasters, and uh, I got some some comments on, I think it was a German forum that people said, uh, yeah, but you feed the stuff because you have the Speedy Tuesday watches. So it's a bit awkward for you to say something about it. And that I can imagine, but I think I'm still entitled of saying something about it. My opinion about limited editions is that um, for me, when buying a watch, I either like the watch or I don't like the watch. And I don't care that much if it's a limited edition or not. And I think for brands, it's a, it's a, that's a different situation. And that's something that, that our cooperation with our collaboration with Omega on the Speedy Tuesday, it, it gave me some insights from their point of view, which is they need a moment to bring their watches under the uh, attention of people. So, of course, you can only make the traditional Moonwatch. And I think a lot of people and, and critics would love that. They don't want to see limited editions or special editions or numbered editions or what sorts of editions. But I don't believe that, that brands can only live of that. They need the impulse. That's also the reason why watch brands release or introduce new models every year. I mean, you don't have to release a new model every year, no matter the brand, um, for the sake of the watches. But you need a momentum that your brand is under the attention again of watch journalists, um, watch collectors, watch enthusiasts. And these limited editions are for them also a way to, yeah, to give a bit of press coverage or coverage in general to their, to their brand in total. Um, also with regards to the limited editions, if you look at our Speedy Tuesday, for example, with 2012 pieces, Omega produces like 750,000 watches each year. Mm. So a Speedy Tuesday is like a one day production for them. So it's not that much. Um, but I think for them, it's a, a lot of exposure that they get. And they also, yeah, they like these things. You must not forget that the people working at these brands also are passionate about watches sure. and, 
And also for me, so that's that, that said for me personally, I have my Moonwatch. I have my uh, a, a modern one. I have one for my year of birth. I have one with the caliber three two one. But if you have those, it's also fun, at least for me, to buy something different with a white dial, with a, a, some colors on the dial, or one made from titanium, or one made from ceramics, or one. So it's nice to have some variation. Um, for a lot of people, it's also a collector's object, and I think they want to collect watches that they love. And if you love the moon watch, I think at some point, if you have your moon watches, you are seeking for some other stuff, which might be a nice limited edition or a special edition that has perhaps some meaning to you. But for instance, in case of the, the Speedmaster for Tokyo 2020, the Olympic Games edition, uh, Mike, you and I both have one. Yeah. It's so different from the normal moon watch. It's fun, but I have, I have nothing with Olympic Games or, I mean... I like to go there and I've been there in the past and it's very much fun and I watch Olympic Games, but I'm not such a big fan that I want to buy a watch because of the Olympic Games. No, I bought the watch because I like how it looks. And I think if you look at it like that, it's fine. That said, um, you can also perhaps overdo it a bit too much. Um, but there I would say, look at the the, the, the thing it's commemorating or the, the meaning it has. Um, I think recently Omega introduced uh, a numbered edition. First Omega in space for the, was it the Mets? Metrop uh, Metrop Metropolitan Museum. Metropolitan Museum, yeah. And there I think, yeah, I don't have anything with the Met, to be honest. And the first Omega in space is also not my favorite. So that was a bit of a, I don't, I don't, I don't like it, so I don't have to buy it. And I think there's also the key perhaps that if you don't like it, just don't buy it. I feel that a lot of people who are complaining about limited editions or their first comment when they see a watch, oh, another limited edition, that's true. But would you buy it otherwise? Would you buy a Speedmaster or whatever watch? I think a lot of these people are not the customers for these watches that are complaining or offering critics. I mean, if you don't like it, then just don't buy it. It's very easy. We saw it also with the Hodinkee H10 watch. If you don't like it, just don't buy it. It's very simple. And of course, you're entitled of your opinion. And I think that there is also the fact that we are really passionate about these things. And I think also the people that are critical towards these limited editions and um, go, oh, another limited edition, what are they doing? They say it because out of their passion for watches, basically, yeah. and that's something that that you can't uh, you can't uh, yeah it that's fine that that's perfectly fine. But I also think you need to see the bigger picture and the con the context of it all. That yeah, watches do need these moments. I think that's very important. And if you don't like it, don't buy it. If you do like it, you, yeah, buy it if you can. And I think there's also a bit of the frustration that some of these watches are so limited. Yeah, and gone. perhaps the Speed they're Tuesday gone. is also a good good example that they're gone in a flash. Um, um, Hodinki did the Oris one, which was really a nice watch, I have to say. Yeah. Kudos to uh, to Hodinki for that, uh, the 65. It was gone in like six or, or eight minutes, 250 pieces. Yeah. That's amazing. So that proves that there is ground for these watches to be there and to be introduced. Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, what I like is that the watch industry is becoming more and more modern uh with every passing day i think you know we, we we talk about it all the time how you know there still is a very traditional element and you know the fact that 
they're listening more and more to their fans today and making some of these limited pieces that are really, yeah, I know people get upset when they see another limited or they don't get it in time uh, because they're sold out. But, you know, a lot of these watches are the result of listening to the fans, maybe drawing, drawing on their back catalog or yeah, just making something that, you know, to be very honest, um, might look amazing, but might not make it as a mainstream model. Um, I, I, I wrote down, you know, one model that comes to mind that I think is, is just a fantastic limited edition from the past several years, but, uh, that Doxa 300, uh, no T. So I think you've, you've gone hands-on with one. I've got yep, a correct. black lung piece and, you know, they made, I think it's now going to be about six different editions of this, you know, with or without the, uh, the Aqualung logo on them. And I think they made a few hundred of each color and, whether you really call that limited or not, if you consider how well-known Doxa is, um, that's, I think, and that's debatable. But, you know, these are watches that I think the watch world is better for them having been made, and they probably just wouldn't be a, a normal catalog watch, but there's enough of them out there uh, that it that it was a, a good idea. And... So to me, the more watches that are out there, the better. Um, I also think that, yeah, the the way that the brands have figured out how to incorporate packaging and or incorporate just a lot of of neat things with these watches um, have made them very attractive. You know, the the sixtieth uh, anniversary Omega pieces that came out a few years ago. I mean what incredible watches. And the reality is that you can still kind of find those today. So, you know, it's limited, but it's not so limited that you can't get it. And what a, what a fitting tribute to, to some amazing watches. So I, I like it. Um, you know, we'll talk in a minute about some things I don't like, but to me, it's exciting. And I think this industry, like you said, has to keep the uh, has to keep the spotlight on itself. In other words, doing something once a year, or maybe in the past even less than that, that just doesn't work today. We don't move at that speed, and therefore, doing things to generate more interest, you know, working with uh, whatever it is, if it's a if it's another brand, if it's a designer or something like that. I think just continues to generate interest in in an object that, you know, we've said it many, many times really has no practical reason for being around anymore. So it's, it's a good thing. I think it's here to stay. Um, and yeah, let, let's see what comes next. So, yeah, I'm not sure if it's here to stay, perhaps not in the extent as we, as we see today. So perhaps they find a, a better modus, uh-huh. um, because I see that in the last few years, the number of limited editions and special editions um, has increased rapidly, uh, not only by Omega, but also Hublot, Tag Heuer. Uh, I think Audemars Piquet, they decreased already the, the number of limited editions a bit. Uh, if you look at Ores, they have a lot of limited editions. Even Grand Seiko, um, if you look at their Elegance collection, mm. I think from the 23 watches that I see on the website, and I'm looking at the Dutch collection, so 23 models in this collection, six of them are limited editions. 
that's, that, that's also quite a number. And you don't hear anyone about those. So I also think it's a bit about the interest of people and, and um, what the community thinks and um, but don't you yeah, think, what the critics are. Don't you think to some degree some of these brands, I mean, they're, they're more or less just trending towards their, the, the base of their collection is actually limited. So mm-hmm. like look at um, – Chrono Swiss, who every couple of weeks we get a different uh, different color scheme, and yeah. I mean, really, I, I think for them, they're for limited. them, it's super important to get traction. <laughs> so they they need the exposure. I think that's that's what, and I think that's what what counts for most brands. And then people rapidly will say, "Oh, but Rolex don't do these." Mm. No, that's true. But I think it's very difficult to compare any brand to Rolex. To be honest, yeah. I agree. I have been I've been in the data business for a while, a few years ago, and um, we measured that uh, with data from Chrono Twenty Four, so pretty accurate, I would say, that almost fifty percent of all demand for watches went to Rolex. Fifty, yeah. and number two was uh, I think Omega, and they were around ten percent, mm-hmm. and number three was about eight percent. So that's crazy. It's a crazy, crazy amount. Um, the demand that Rolex gets, so they don't need to. And I think they tried a little bit with perhaps with their, their first their um, the sub with a green bezel and black dial, and uh, the Kermit, yep. and later on with, with the Hulk. And I don't think this is a limited edition, but it was introduced as an anniversary edition. And I think they indicated that it was not limited or numbered or whatever, but they could pull it whenever they want. Yep. I guess they never did. I think this green one is still in the in the collection, right? The Hulk. Oh yeah. You yeah. can't you can't get it, but it's still there. Um, so yeah, it's not a limited edition, but they tried something to do something similar. But I think in the end, it's very difficult and perhaps a bit unfair to always to always uh, compare to Rolex because they have such a massive, strange, massive. and perhaps unique yeah. <laughs> uh, um, position in the market. Yeah. No, I agree. So. We've hit upon some of the things, but just to talk about what what we really don't like. I mean, I'll I'll kick this off, but obviously there's the the speculative piece that is frustrating about um, about the limited edition collaborative yeah. uh, trend. And then, you know, I, I I also don't really there there are some watches that have come out that I think. Seiko did this uh, 60th anniversary Alpinist only for the U.S. market some months back. And, okay, I'm a Seiko person, but I haven't really liked the green Alpinist that's the normal model uh, that's been out for quite a long time. I never never really identified with that watch. And the blue one I thought was very attractive. And to me, for, for a watch that I think is quite hit and miss in its normal form, I was quite surprised that they didn't make this a normal model uh, because mm-hmm. I think it would have done well. So so sometimes I think these these limited models actually are either better than the uh, the normal model or could easily be the replacement. Yeah, what I feel is that um, there are two sorts of buyers, I think. These are the collectors and enthusiasts, uh, much like ourselves, and you have the one that speculate. And that's what I really don't like with limited editions. That's what um, bothers me a bit. We saw it ourselves with the Speed Tuesday, um, but you see it with the, the, the Speedmaster for Hodinki. You even see it with the Oris. If I look up their Oris 65 they just did, do, do you happen to recall the list price of that? Oh, I thought it was 2300 
there's one for sale now on Chrono 24. Mm-hmm. Um, and they ask 3,300 euros. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, if you don't want to wear it, I don't want to buy it, then, yeah, yeah the whole speculating thing is a bit... Um, Awkward. Yeah, it was uh, twenty three hundred dollars. Yes. So that's uh, I don't know what two thousand euros or something. Yeah, roughly. So the premium is like a good thousand, and yeah, I don't know. I, I don't like this. It's I, I it's a quick buck. I I get it from a seller's perspective or a dealer perspective, and I know this is how the market works. But I just feel it's a bit taking advantage of something, and uh, perhaps I'm naive in this, or perhaps a, a bit too principle but i yeah it's something that i don't like it's a side effect of limited editions and special editions that i don't like that there are people that really want to watch like this and dealers they they snag a few and uh, sell it for uh, a good premium or with a good, good pre- premium i think that's a that's a pity to be honest yeah that 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 actually reminds me when i was growing up of you know, the baseball card phenomenon and i'm sure Growing up, you collected things as well that had had real hype behind them, and they peaked, and then you know they weren't worthless the next day, but they were they never really regained their value, and that that is one concern I've got out there. Uh, I really hope I, I I hope we never hit that uh, point with watches and that things get overbaked like that. But I do think that thankfully there are enough. Uh, what I would classify as real collectors out there who enjoy their watches and enjoy wearing them that they're you know we're, we're not dominated by flippers thankfully thankfully yeah i also have to say that, that even some collectors they if they show you a watch or talk about a watch i think it's 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 two or three sentences about the watch itself and then it already quickly How is about is the value worth? of the watch yeah. and that that really don't interest me to be honest yeah yeah. I um, I really don't care. Um, it reminds me of we, we did the Speed Tuesday event in Frankfurt. And um, thanks to uh, Tom, one of the guests, he had a scratch pen with him. Um, I had my watch scratched by astronaut Charlie Duke. Uh-huh. And uh, I had my Snoopy watch scratched, the, the white dial one. And these go for, I don't know, between 15 and 20,000 euros. So people were a bit, ooh, would you do that? Because that watch is really expensive. Yeah, but it's not to me. I mean, yeah, you're not I like it. it. I bought it at retail. I'm not going to sell it. And I want to have his name in there from this guy that stood on the moon that has had its role more or less with uh, Apollo 13. So for me, that's way cooler. Um, I also had this have this um, Apollo 13 limited edition from 1995. And I scratched it to the... Uh, um, command module that was in Houston. Oh, yeah. I thought it was fun to have a scratch on this watch <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, made by the c- command module. And um, yeah, people say, oh, that's really nuts, this and that. But I really like this kind of geeky stuff. And I, I don't care if it's it's affecting the, the value. Uh, I'm not selling them anyway. I'm collecting them. I enjoy them. I wear all my watches, even the, the, the gold ones. I wear them. If they get scratched, I don't really care because that's uh, what a watch is for. Um and it, it brings some life to the watch. If I, I'm old, at least older than now, and I pass down a watch or two to my daughter, then she really knows that I wore these watches, and she will be um, from her memory. I hope so, at least, that she 
remembers me wearing these these watches when I uh, when I give them to her. And um, if you give her a brand new watch, that doesn't mean doesn't have any. much. I guess that doesn't it doesn't have the uh, the provenance as they as they say the, the, that that I wore it. Yeah. So yeah, I really don't care about these about these things. And for me, the value is a is a side effect of this whole watch thing. I, for me, it's really about collecting and, and uh, the details of a certain watch. And, and that's fun. So yeah, coming back to the thing with limited editions, I feel you have speculators and you have enthusiasts being collectors or just the occasional purchase. Um, I'm definitely in that field. I don't buy watches for speculating. I think I made a few decisions in the past that are proof of that, getting rid of some watches. No, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm not a... I'm not a seller, uh, and but but I will tell you there was uh, I remember during the big Panerai hype from boy that would have been 2007 time frame I was living in the U.S. and I purchased a uh, uh, what was this the 249 so this was that California dial that was a limited piece and oh yeah yeah that was really hard to get and. Okay, I'm I'm a collector, so there is a bit of a competitive piece in me, but it was more just about having the opportunity to buy one at retail, and you know, getting that phone call when it was there, and how exciting that was. And I will tell you, I was pretty let down when the company made that a regular model some years later, and and it wasn't. I I don't know how to explain it because it wasn't because of money it wasn't it was just because yeah i felt like yeah i had um yeah i was fortunate enough to be able to buy one and then they kind of made it a little bit less special if that makes sense yeah so yeah that's true and i think that was the the main critic about uh the, the, in, the, in the paneristi forums um I, I'm not saying I was a Paneristi, but I had a Panerai, or a few actually, and I went to a, a P-Day, which was really cool, so it's, uh, this event for Paneristi, and I think they still do it. I think that perhaps the community became a bit smaller, but I think they were really the first out there to do this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, it was really nice. And um, yeah, I think one of the things that set some people off were um, the fact that Bonati, the former CEO of uh, Panerai, he promised that uh, certain models would be like only used once. And then later on, he came back on that decision and uh, made some more watches in these in these cases and, and, and shapes in series. I think that put a lot of people off. As well as the, I think there was something wrong with the New York boutique special, right? That they claimed or they said there was a certain movement inside that one. And I think one of the customers, he opened his watch and saw that it was a pretty unfinished movement inside. And that caused a whole yeah, negative spiral um, around that that particular watch and perhaps about the community. But I think in general, um, it's quite an interesting community, yeah, um, quite friendly. And uh, I think a lot of these people that were in there from the beginning are still in there. So they really have like a, a core group. Of, of Panerai collectors, a lot of vintage stuff. So it's really interesting to, uh, to, to have a look. I think I still look up their forum once in a while if I want to know something. They're quite knowledgeable people. And um, yeah, I have a soft spot towards Panerai, I have to say. I'm the same. It, uh, I'm the same. it, it, it went a bit away uh, a few years ago until I visited their new manufacturer in Neuchâtel. It was a few years ago, perhaps 2016 or 17. Mm-hmm. And it was quite, yeah, I was quite amazed to see it. Um, they do a lot more about testing the watches and making sure 
the quality is okay and, and sh- being shockproof, anti-magnetic, water resistant. They do a lot of things with different materials. They have a whole, they have an entire lab there uh, where, where they do this stuff. And um, yeah, it was quite surprising to me because they don't advertise with this. They advertise with being the lifestyle choice of and- lifestyle and being the choice of the, 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 the Italian Navy and so on. Um, they don't really express their 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 uh, engin- engineering, prowess, basically. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, with you. and I'm I think that would make a difference because after I saw that, after I saw where they make the movements, how they do the finishing, uh, and the testing of the watches, as I said, I think it's uh, quite an interesting brand in the end. Yeah. I think they just had a a period where they didn't know what to do with the marketing or, or how to market their watches properly. And I think they they took a quite a blow, but um, yeah, I think they deserve more credit. I'm with you, and certainly it's uh, appropriate in, in this discussion. But they just uh, debuted in the past couple of days these new uh, four new green hued models that are only available at their boutiques. And gotta say, I like them. So yeah, you wrote about it in uh, this week in watches, yeah. the July 13 edition and uh, it looks really good even with the brown with the, with the brown strap and the and um, the green dial and, and the gold hands it's very very nice um yeah. combination yeah definitely yeah i actually put some thought in into which watch i choose for the cover and uh, that made the cover because i i really thought it was a striking watch so i guess not limited but at least limited by the fact that you have to go to one of their boutiques to get it so yeah so there we Talking go. Talking about another limited, I, I want to add one more. Oh, yeah. It's the Lange und Söhne Lange One that is celebrating its 25th anniversary this year. And every month they come up with a anniversary special. So they released the sixth model this year. The moon face. Um, yeah, with the moon face. And I think they will continue to do so till October because in October is the real big anniversary, I guess. Okay. And I have to say they do a quite a decent job. And I also don't see much complaining going on there oh, so they, i think they do it quite well they're, yeah they're they're really beautiful with the white gold and the, the silver dial and the blued hands uh, i i could just cut and paste my comments every time they come out with one because each one is yeah they're they're really attractive and i think they're you know 38 and a half millimeters hand wound so i could definitely wear one of those no problem <laughs> yeah yeah, exactly. I can uh, I can imagine. So. I can imagine. Well, good. Okay. I think good. that's I think that's all for this week and um I want to thank you for tuning in. Hopefully these topics were were fun to listen to and as always if you've got questions or other ideas for topics, let us know. Um info at fortellowatches.com and you can follow Robert John on Instagram at rjbrewer b r o e r and me at Mike in Frankfurt. And thanks again for tuning in. Yeah, thanks for listening. And also one more thanks to um, to the reader's question, uh, uh, listener's question, I have to say, for this week, which came from Masik. I looked up his name. It's Masik. And I guess he is from Poland. I'm not sure, but his name sounds Polish. If it's not, my apologies. But at least thank you for um, for shooting a question to us. And uh, yeah, shoot questions to us. You can also email us to info at fratellowatches.com. 